0: Right, and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, a specialist GP, and today I welcome Dr. Megan Ogilvie back to the podcast to discuss Red S, or Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, and also Low Energy Availability. What we need to know for primary care management... Megan is an endocrinologist and works both at Auckland District Health Board and Fertility Associates. She works in areas of both general and reproductive endocrinology. She is also a member of WISPA. Welcome, Megan.
1: Thank you, Louise. Thank you for inviting me to come along and talk about this subject. We've been doing a lot to take this information out to
0: community groups and GP involvement is really important. Perfect. Well, thanks for being here. So, Megan, read S relative energy deficiency in sport. So red S may be a new term for some of our listeners and some may be more familiar with the female athlete triad. I wonder if you could tell us why red S is a more appropriate term, please. I think that's
1: a great question because all of this terminology is quite muddling and it's quite helpful to understand some of the history behind what has gone on. There's actually a lot of research and work behind the female athlete triad, and that all was something that was happening in the 1980s and 1990s. And in 1997, the female athlete triad group published their first consensus statement with their first model. And that model comprised the three things, lowered energy availability, amenorrhea, and osteoporosis or lowered bone density in a female athlete and then over the rest of the 90s and the early 2000s the more fluid nature of that model became appreciated and the understanding that the female athlete can move up and down the continuum of those three things and optimal health then in 2014, the International Olympic Committee published a consensus statement entitled Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, or REDS. And their aim was to rename the condition. So they still maintained within their model. If you have a look at the consensus statement, which I think is a resource attached to this podcast, you will see a circle, spoken wheel type model, and you'll see a red. Triangle as part of that, and that maintains those three things. But it was also an attempt to recognize the more multi system nature of this condition, all the other parts of the body that can be involved. And it was also an attempt to recognize that men can also be a part of this condition. So, for those of us who work clinically in, the, in this area, those were two steps forward that were important for clinical care and clinical management. There's been a lot of controversy between the two groups in the US and in 2019, the female athlete triad group answered this by creating a consensus statement called the male athlete triad. And they have changed their model again to now include reproductive dysfunction. So it includes both sexes, lowered energy availability and lowered bone density. And I don't know that it really matters which term you use out of all of this, so long as you understand what you're
0: using and and why you're using it. Okay, thanks for clarifying that. So, what's the underlying mechanism underpinning red S? So, it all comes
1: down to lowered energy availability and determining the energy equation that the body works with. So, I explain it to patients on the basis that. Your body takes in all the calories you give it every 24 hours. And then the first thing it takes out is anything you make a conscious decision to do. So for many of our patients, that involves all their training, that involves their PE at school, they're walking to school, they're walking between classes, they're walking to work. All that incidental activity is all part of that. And then what's left over is the energy availability. And that runs everything that your body doesn't make a conscious decision to do. So that runs your reproductive axis, your ability to stay warm, your gut function, your brain function, and your ability to heal after micro injuries. And that's why girls with this condition are at a higher risk of stress fracture and also of ligament tears and muscle injuries because they don't have enough nutrition around to heal those micro injuries. And there is some fluidity in the energy available to the body. So if energy is not is there is not enough energy to run those less important components of the body, like the reproductive access, then the energy is taken away from that and is used for more important parts of the body. And when you start to not have enough energy and energy availability areas, then it starts to impact on those things that you make a conscious decision to do as well. And athletes start to present with uh, without the capacity to do the training, without the results and with much longer recovery times than their peers. There's also been more research to suggest that it's not only the total number of energy availability that is important, but also the way that energy availability is spaced out during the day. So the more of the day that you spend in a positive energy balance, the healthier you're going to be. So if you've got your athlete that perhaps last fuels at 8pm at night and sleeps all night and then gets up at 6am and goes to the gym or goes and does their exercise and then doesn't actually eat until morning tea or lunchtime, that's a large part of the day that that athlete is in a negative energy balance. And when that compounds day after day after day, that athlete is probably going to get into trouble with this. This is a spectrum of presentation. So down one end of the spectrum, we've got the people that reach the DSM-5 criteria for an eating disorder. They have clear anorexia or bulimia. But up the other end of the spectrum, we have the athlete that is just inadvertently underfueling, just not keeping up. And then in the middle of the spectrum, we have various stages of disordered eating. So, understanding where your patient sits on that spectrum is really quite important.
0: That's a good point, Megan, actually, because for some, and especially our younger athletes, it may just be time. It's not mm-hmm. a deliberate thing, it's just that they're rushing from one thing to another, and actually, they don't have time from sports practice to sitting in a classroom to actually fuel?
1: It's a real issue with schoolgirl athletes because they are all doing their practices together. They're given five minutes between the end of practice to be in class. They've got to shower, get dressed, get into class and get going and get on with first period. And at the other end of the day as well, school finishes, they've got to be on the sports field in, in seven minutes time and it's hard to fit fuel into that and perhaps not a high enough priority, but it
0: needs to be. Absolutely. So you mentioned earlier on about males being involved. So my next question that I was thinking about was, does the syndrome just affect females? But you've almost answered that question. So tell us about that.
1: It absolutely affects men as well. You hear me talk about women much more than men, because there's much more research in women we know a lot more about it and it's much easier to find because of course women have this lovely marker of health with their menstrual cycle and when that changes we need to be looking at that and so we find the women much much more easily there is research in men there's not enough yet there is a suggestion in the literature that Men actually need to get down to much greater energy deficits to be affected and perhaps bounce back faster than women. But it's not absolutely conclusive, and we certainly need more work in the area. The other problem we have in New Zealand, and I suspect probably across the Western world, is that many men who are presenting with fatigue or sexual dysfunction, which is the two common ways that men present, They often go to the men's clinics first and they are prescribed testosterone often without a testosterone level actually being measured or they have gone to the gyms and they have purchased androgen boosters or all the amazing regimes that are available if you go down to the gym and go looking for these things. Men are purchasing HCG, testosterone, all sorts of products that are changing their testicular function and providing quite significant ongoing testicular suppression and making this diagnosis much tougher because it can often take men a year to come off those products to go back to their baseline testicular function. So it's a harder group, but it's certainly out there.
0: So then thinking about screening, because In my world, prevention is so much better than being the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. So is there a screening tool that we should be thinking about using with our athletes? And if so, what is it? And how often should we be screening? And does it help us categorize risk?
1: So this is tricky, right? And there's about um, four questions in the question you've just asked. Let's think about screening first and then let's think about a risk tool. After that, the tricky thing about this condition is that there's no diagnostic criteria and there's no guidelines around screening. You have to have a very high level of suspicion and you really have to have a nose looking for energy deficiency. And this is now the most common diagnosis that our group see in reproductive age women and in schoolgirls. So we almost approach somebody who has changed the menstrual cycle with this is energy deficiency until proven otherwise, because it so commonly is. And if you think it might be, then it probably is. It is helpful to keep in mind some of the risk factors that are out there. So if you look, Catherine Black is a sports dietitian from Otago University, one of the professors at Otago University, who's done really good research in this area. And she's looked at recreational athletes. She did a cross-sectional questionnaire study through the gyms and fitness centers, looking at female athletes. And to qualify for that study, they had to be uh, fulfilling the World Health Organization criteria for moderate exercise, which I think is about 150 minutes per week or more. And she found that women were at higher risk of being classed as low energy availability if they had a history of stress fracture or if they had a history of musculoskeletal injury in the last 12 months. And for every day of training, in the last 12 months because of injury also pushed up their risk of lowered energy availability. So if you're starting to hear things like that, start asking more questions. Finding out what our athletes are eating and and what food groups are missing is also important. I'm certainly not anti-vegetarian or vegan eating regimes, but it really needs to be done properly to make sure that the protein is being replaced and the iron is being replaced, just eating a standard food regime and then just missing out the meat or just missing out the animal products is not going to be successful, especially if you're teaming that with several hours of training per week. So asking your athlete what food groups they avoid is also quite a useful question. Knowing when periods started, If periods started above the age of 15, that increases your risk of energy availability. And also having an awareness of how much training somebody is doing and what else is going on for them, what other commitments they have will make you more keen to ask more questions. And clearly the trickiest group are those on hormonal contraception because you don't know what's happening to their menstrual cycles. And um, whether you should be advising somebody to stop their hormonal contraception and see. And I typically look for changes. So, knowing what weight somebody was when they had a regular period of hormonal contraception, if somebody's dropped significantly below that weight, then you should think about it. Change in well being, change in um, injury status, bowel habit. Training capacity, all those things should be raising some markers for you and making you think about this condition. Then we were going to talk about a screening tool, weren't we? There are two tools out there, again, fitting with these two competing groups in this area. There is a REDS CAT, uh, a REDS clinical assessment tool or REDS CAT screening tool uh, that uses a traffic light system. So, green, good to go. Orange, you need to be careful and be thinking about energy balance. Red, this person actually reaches the diagnostic criteria for an eating disorder, and you need to stop training and and start to put in place management for that. And the female athlete triad also have a grading system where you add up the points, looking at things like bone density, menstrual cycles, stress fractures, age of menarche, and so on. I think that the female athlete triad one is a bit tougher and uh, I tend to use that a bit more often. I use these scores if I'm trying to justify to myself or to the athlete or to the elite sporting body why we really need to be pulling back on training. I don't tend to do it for every single athlete Uh, but certainly if you're trying to gauge a feeling of severity, it is a useful thing to do. Just be aware that this, for almost all of the athletes we work with, this is a collaborative uh, working environment, and it's all about negotiation. So if you can use it to demonstrate severity and try to, gain evidence as to why that person needs to be thinking about the amount of training they're doing, then that's great. But using it in a kind of punitive, actually, you shouldn't be doing this doesn't get you anywhere because you really don't have any power to enforce that.
0: Okay, thanks for that, Megan. So you've mentioned a couple of clinical features where people may present to us. You've mentioned um, menstrual abnormality as being one of the most common ones, and that's definitely what I see but what are the clinical features most commonly that people will present with and complain of?
1: So for women, menstrual changes is absolutely the number one thing. For men, uh, actually the most common clinical sign is a loss of early morning erections. But actually the men that I have seen have presented mainly with fatigue and not being able to train as well. So they'll say, I'm not getting anywhere with my training and I'm trying to train more and get, do more and do more and I'm just not getting the results. And of course, they're just moving more and more into an energy deficiency type picture and the answer is for them to pull back. The gut symptoms are incredibly common and they're not being picked up fast enough. So by the time most young women get to me, they have almost always gone through some sort of nutritionist program where they've gone through excluding various bits from their diet. They've often gone through low FODMAPs, really with not very good results. And of course, that's only increasing the food obsessions and cutting back the calories again. So we need to be encouraging those women with energy deficiency and gut symptoms to actually keep eating because the bowel needs energy to work properly. When the bowel doesn't have energy, it doesn't work properly. And you get this irritable bowel syndrome type picture that young women loathe. Anxiety, uh, low mood are uh, also really common and recurrent musculoskeletal injury. That's the most common presentation to the sports physicians. And the sports physicians now are really good at screening for this condition. They ask, all female athletes what's happening to menstrual cycles and they're really good at screening for it with men as well and referring or managing it themselves if they if they think that that's the diagnosis
0: okay perfect so physical examination Megan what should we be measuring looking for You do
1: clearly need to do a physical examination, but I would encourage you to take your time with history because that is generally where you're going to make your diagnosis. Coming back to history for a second and just answering your physical examination question, you do need to know height, weight, and BMI, but normal BMI is not an exclusion for this condition. So the weight and BMI really gives you objective data to follow rather than makes your diagnosis for you. This is also a diagnosis of exclusion. So you need to look for clinical signs of any other cause of change in periods, acne, hirsutism, And if you really think that this young woman might be reaching the clinical criteria for an eating disorder, looking for clinical signs for that as well. And of course, if a young woman presents with primary amenorrhea, then you need to look at the other stages of pubertal development to know what category this patient is sitting in. But with history, try to mark out, so you you want to know what age period started, and then trying to understand a pattern of periods over that young woman's lifetime. And what you're really looking for is. Most commonly, the differential diagnosis comes down to is this energy deficiency or is this polycystic ovarian syndrome? And thinking about the two conditions as polar opposites. So, polycystic ovarian syndrome periods will get better as weight comes down or fitness goes up, whereas energy deficiency is the opposite. So, if you can find out when periods were regular and what that young woman was like at that time how fit was she what was her weight and then how does that compare to now that will give you quite a lot of information also the nature of the periods PCOS tends to give quite a long-standing oligomenorrhea type picture you don't tend to have very regular menstrual cycles until 26 and then suddenly stop periods Unless you've put on 10 kilos of weight, or you've gone from being very, very fit to doing nothing, then a more of a PCOS picture might come out. But that very regular cycle that is then stopped is far more of a hypothalamic picture than a PCOS picture. So understanding the history is often where this diagnosis is made.
0: Good points. Thank you for clarifying that. So then We've got this woman, we've got questions in our mind and we think, all right, we need to order some investigations. So what do we need to order? Is it blood work? Do we need to do a DEXA? What is it that we should be thinking about? And what would be different between a male patient and a female patient?
1: So the first thing you're going to do is some bloods and you're going to do this for a couple of reasons. You're going to remember that this is a diagnosis of exclusion. So you need to do all the other tests that you would normally do to exclude causes of menstrual change. And the differential diagnosis here is a pituitary lesion because what you typically see with energy deficiency is a very low LH and a low estradiol or testosterone level. If FSH is suppressed as well, that person is generally very eating disordered. So you need to have quite significant eating disorder to suppress FSH in this condition. But the bloods are going to look like possibly, is this a pituitary lesion? And so you want to look at all your other markers of pituitary function as well, and you need to make sure you've done a prolactin. So you're going to do FSH, LH, estradiol or testosterone, prolactin, 8AM cortisol, and a full set of thyroid function tests, TSH and T4, And I realise that can be slightly tricky with GP funding and ideally an IGF-1, but again, that can be tricky with GP funding. So that's going to firstly, make sure that there is no other reason for that uh, reproductive change. Secondly, tell you about the severity and thirdly, tell you about whether you should be thinking about a pituitary MRI scan. Now, we don't do a pituitary MRI scan on everybody. With women, we do one if there are other pituitary abnormalities that we're concerned about, or if the story doesn't quite fit. So you don't have that lovely story of regular cycle, then I started to want to lose some weight and periods stopped. And so if you're not getting that kind of story, then I would think about doing an MRI scan. Or if the young woman continues to work hard and make lifestyle changes and clinically get better, but we're not seeing improvement in bloods, then I would do an MRI scan. For men, I have a different threshold. And that probably relates to my level of comfort with making this diagnosis And men. I tend to scan them earlier, but also we just don't quite know as much about men. So, So I think considering an MRI scan for men sooner rather than later is important. A bone dexa scan is also useful information for you. Now, the official guidelines say that a young woman needs to have lost periods for six months before a bone dexa scan will show any changes. Remember, with that, that the combined contraceptive pill is unhelpful for bones in this situation. So, if you get the history that your patient has come off a contraceptive pill and not had periods for four or five months, a DEXA scan is still indicated because you don't know when periods stopped for that young woman and how long she's actually been energy deficient for and what you commonly see with that bone density is a loss of spinal bone density because the spinal bone is more affected by estrogen than the hips so that's the kind of typical pattern we see and that can be really useful to encourage young women to make changes, because women are often not convinced by this diagnosis. So if you can show them some outcome that is happening within their body, it can build your case.
0: Megan, I just wonder if I can ask a question about the periods not coming back, because that is quite a common occurrence. And often, in our teaching, it's been more like wait for a year. But that seems like an awfully long time and I suppose that's supported by the fertility guidelines of they have to have been trying for a year before you really investigate. So is six months more an appropriate time to act? They've come off the pill or depot or a marina. If they haven't had a period by six months, we should be thinking a little bit harder. Uh,
1: no, I would say earlier than that. So, okay. so a combined contraceptive pill, The vast majority of girls move back into a regular cycle very quickly, but I would accept three months of the contraceptive pill before I investigated that young woman any further. A marina women move back very quickly into their baseline cycles within a month or so, and if they're not, we need to be looking at that. Depo can have a runoff period, and that can be up to six months uh, and sometimes a bit longer, not very commonly. But if you're suspicious, go looking for it. Because the hardest thing about this condition is the length of time it takes for young women to get better. And I'm setting that expectation up front. This is a difficult group of patients to manage. They will not believe your diagnosis. They will challenge your diagnosis along the way. And they will get extremely frustrated about what they see as a lack of progress as you go through this this timeline with them. I measure hormone levels once a month to give some feeling of progress. And typically, you will see the FSH, if the FSH suppression is suppressed, you will see that normalize. Then you see LH normalize. And then when you see estradiol come to about three to 400, you will see menstrual resumption. But stressing to that young woman the length of time it's going to take is really important. And it can take 6 to 12 months of normal positive energy balance to get menstrual resumption. And setting that expectation up front helps when it gets tough down the track to say, hey, look, remember, we talked about this, this can take time. But commonly too, girls will start to make changes, but they don't make enough. So they will fuel a bit more, exercise a bit less, and then almost give up or or not go any further. And I think that that's You know, there is a tsunami of messaging out there about the definition of being healthy. And, you know, even our public health department will tell you that our definition of being healthy is eating less and moving more. And that's absolutely appropriate for the vast majority of the population in New Zealand and in the Western world where diabetes and heart disease is so high. But there is a real group of people who are getting very caught up in those messages and they're not healthy through this either. And so what we're trying to do is turn that messaging on its head. And whilst that might seem sensible while you're sitting in a consultation having this discussion, as soon as that person goes out your door, they are hit with that messaging again. And all that social media influence and celebrity media influence and Environmental concerns about why everybody should be vegan and so on. And so it's very easy to slip back into what they're hit with on a day-to-day basis. And paying attention to that, especially for our schoolgirl athletes, getting looking at what they're following on social media and talking about that messaging is really, really important because that's what that young person is battling with day after day after day. So Sticking with that person, this is an addiction. Just like there's a smoking addiction, alcohol addiction, there's absolutely an exercise addiction and an orthorexic, clean eating addiction. And you need to keep seeing that person and stick with them to help them get
0: better because most people can't do this on their own. Okay, wonderful. Thank you for clarifying that for us. So thinking about uh, the diagnostic criteria, You've already alluded to this, but what do we actually need to do to make a diagnosis?
1: So we need to do the hormone testing and you absolutely need to do the hormone testing. So I have seen a few cases that have been missed of other uh, diagnoses of a change in periods because that schoolgirl athlete has had their lack of period put down to the fact that they are very lean and very fit. Without any hormone testing, and we've actually missed quite significant other diagnoses. So, the hormone testing is really important. If you can get a dietitian assessment from a dietitian that is experienced in energy deficiency, again, many of our dietitians out there are really good at helping people lose weight and um, get their fitness up. And actually, this is coming at things from the other direction. And so you really need a dietitian who, and and understanding where your patient sits on that spectrum of eating, are they eating disordered or is this inadvertent underfueling? Will help you decide whether you need more of a sports dietitian or an eating disorder dietitian for support. But the quicker I can get a dietitian assessment and a feeling from the dietitian as to how energy deficient that person is, the better I can achieve the diagnosis and the the faster that person will get better. So that multidisciplinary team support, even also with some psychology support, is fantastic. The problem with all of this is cost, isn't it? You know, this is not well covered by insurance. There are a large number of people out there that don't have insurance And you actually have to have reasonably good financial resources to have this condition in New Zealand, unfortunately. And I don't have any good answers to that at the moment, except that if we can get more GPs managing this condition, then that will cut some of the cost for the patient. And some of the sports dietitians don't so much do ongoing Continued assessment, but actually see somebody once or twice and give them a lot of resources to run with. And that also actually over time decreases cost. But a multidisciplinary approach helps with diagnosis and also helps with management.
0: Megan, so you've mentioned an appropriate dietitian, which sounds sensible. And actually, it sounds like we need a multidisciplinary team which is quite skilled with general practice feeding into this. So what would an ideal multidisciplinary team look like?
1: I think an ideal multidisciplinary team looks like a medical lead. So the medical person establishing the diagnosis, being comfortable with that, arranging follow-up and continuing to coordinate the team and tell that athlete, yes, you're getting better or no, we're not getting anywhere and continuing to push that person forward and support them. The dietitian is is really important to give that person an understanding of what sort of fueling is required to run the regime that they're trying to run. And really commonly, I get, uh, let's take a schoolgirl athlete as an example, I might send them off to a sports dietitian and they come back to me generally with mum and they say we just can't eat that much that is just too much food we cannot physically fit all of that food in over the day and i can't send my child to school with that amount of food and then that gives you an opportunity to say okay well can we let's cut down on what the energy requirement is then what training sessions can go how can we decrease the requirement for that amount of food because that's the amount of food required to get that person healthy again. So you need to change the energy in and energy out. Psychology is so valuable if you can get it. If you can convince that young woman to get it, get psychology support, it will make a big difference to recovery. There's some interesting work come out of Boston from a researcher whose name is Sarah Berger, Who is very convinced that there is a personality type of young woman that is affected by this condition? And she tends to be three things. She tends to be a very type A, goal driven personality type. She tends to be a perfectionist and she tends to be very good at putting other people's needs before her own. And I talk to patients a lot about that. And I generally get a bit of a grin at the end of running through that list. And Sarah Berg has done a study looking at using cognitive behavioral therapy. She had very small numbers in the study. I think she had about 10 women in each group, two groups, the CBT group and then the control group. And the CBT group was 16 weeks of CBT, which went through things like setting boundaries, saying no, uh, understanding what your priorities are, body positivity, body dysmorphia, Um, social media messaging, all those kind of things. And the control group really didn't get much input at all. And BMI didn't change in the two groups, but three quarters of the CBT group got their period back following that program compared to one in in the control group. So psychology is a big part of this the kind of changes that you're making for that young woman or you're asking that young woman to make invariably bring up anxiety and a fear of loss of control. And using psychology to help give that young woman tools to manage those things is really, really important. Anxiety is is something that feeds into the cause of this condition But it also feeds out the other end. And it's amazing as girls work and start to get their period back and a bit of estrogen around again and some nutrition to their brain, how anxiety will often settle and mood will also improve. So psychology support in all of those those areas is, is, is really important. If you have an elite athlete who is working with an exercise physiologist, they can also be very useful in managing this condition and managing the training requirements. But clearly, most of the recreational athletes we see don't sit in that space. So what
0: is the outcome for these athletes, Megan? Variable. Uh, We...
1: I would estimate that we work on average with a young person a young athlete for about two years to get uh, reproductive dysfunction back again and longer than that to see improvements in bone density. This is a long involved treatment process and it is really emotionally demanding on both patient and doctor. So you need to be aware of that and you need to be aware that you might well lose 50% of people that you're trying to help. For some, these changes are just too big. They can't, can't deal with them and they wander off and they might come back to you at some point. There's quite a lot of doctor shopping. You know, when the changes become too hard That person is looking for an answer that doesn't involve you need to change your lifestyle and sometimes put on a little bit of weight. It's much easier not to hear that. So, if they can find somebody who gives them a different answer, or perhaps just puts them on a contraceptive pill and and allows them to not think about this, then for some people that is preferable. So, being aware of that helps me um, manage. Uh, some of these people as well, firstly, to try and prevent that. But secondly, not to take it terribly personally when people wander off and, and talk to others. But for those who stick with it and make the changes and get healthy again, I see some really good outcomes. I see spontaneous pregnancies for people who want pregnancy. I see athletes returning to the international Uh, competing uh, forum for their chosen sport. I see mood improve, libido improve, young women enter relationships because suddenly they've got the headspace and actually the libido to want to be with somebody else. So I see some really good outcomes. I see improvements in bone density and improvements in gut function. Sometimes I even get a thank you at the end of it all. Um, So it is absolutely a worthwhile
0: area to treat. It's just tough sometimes to stick with it. Which brings me on to my next question. So clearly prevention is so much better than cure. So what are the messages that we need to get out into our communities to prevent redness?
1: Prevention's absolutely much better than cure because cure sounds tough, right? So I think that prevention needs to be around education. I work with a group called WISPA, Healthy Women in Sport, a Performance Advantage. It's a high-performance sport initiative, and we are really moving forward in the area of education to the elite athlete group, but also to the schoolgirl athlete group. And if you look on our website, there are some resources in the area of education and prevention. Talking to your athletes about this condition. Most people don't even know this condition is possible or it exists. So educating about the possibilities of this condition, educating that menstrual change is not normal and needs to be investigated. A lack of periods is not a badge of honor for um, how passionately devoted you are to your sport. It's actually a badge of being unhealthy and needs to be looked at. So making people aware, the sports dietitian I work with, Dane Baker, has the statement of athletes fuel and train, they don't diet and exercise. And if you want to be committed to being as fit as you can, following the latest fad in eating, whatever that is, is not going to be helpful to helping you stay healthy and achieve that. Sensible, regular fueling from all food groups is what's going to be useful. So uh, I think those kind of education messages are really important. Empowering parents of our young athletes to say, hang on, guys, that's enough. I don't care what the coach says. I don't care what your friends are doing. You have done too much training this week. You need to stop is also really important because the parent is the only one who has the overall picture of what that athlete is doing. And empowering them to take charge of that is also
0: really, really a good thing. So I wonder if we can move on to some special groups. And you've mentioned our junior athletes. Sometimes they're working across a number of disciplines and training many, many hours every week. So do young people get the syndrome?
1: Young people absolutely get
0: the syndrome. And if anything, they're more at
1: risk. They're completing growth and completing puberty. And so they need more fuel for that. I don't know if you've looked at your child's electronic step counter at all, but most kids are doing 10 to 15,000 steps per day as they walk between classes and walk to school and then they've got their training sessions on top of that. And our talented school girl athletes, but it'll be boy athletes as well, who are working across a couple of or three sporting disciplines are doing all of the training sessions for each discipline. And I think part of what the parents need to be doing is coordinating that, talking to the coaches, finding out how much of it is being duplicated and what can actually be missed. More is not better in this scenario. The other thing is that those young people are putting on their peak bone mass. By your early 20s, you reach your peak bone mass and your sex hormone is a very important part of that and making parents aware of that fact. I think most parents don't know that. Is, is really important. It's hard to take that amount of food to school. And of course, there's all sorts of peer pressures at school as to who's eating what and who isn't. So I think that our school girl athletes specifically are very, very
0: at risk and we need to be looking at them closely. And the warning signs in a young person?
1: So again, menstrual change, exhaustion, bowel symptoms, and musculoskeletal injury and stress fracture. I'm not sure what the sports physicians would say about this, but I don't believe that our adolescent athletes should be stress fracturing. And if they are, then we need to be looking at why that is.
0: I wonder about other special groups. So um, we've just had the para-Olympics. So what about the para-athletes? Are they more at risk and what do we need to consider with those?
1: So the 2014 International Olympic Committee consensus statement on radius was the first time that para athletes were really considered in this arena and again it's not an area that there is a lot of research but it's very possible that a para athlete might be at higher risk of osteoporosis because of immobility of a part of them and it's very possible that they have greater energy needs due to some inefficient movement that might be a part of what's going on for them. So we, we absolutely need to be looking at that group too and considering this condition.
0: And then the other group I wondered about was transgender people. Do mm. they have different needs?
1: I'm not sure that they have different needs, but the diagnosis is going to be clouded because of the hormone treatment that they're taking. And clearly you're not going to know about reproductive dysfunction because we're replacing that with the testosterone or the oestrogen. And you will be very reliant on what your dietician is telling you to actually make this diagnosis. And you won't be able to monitor the sex hormones to actually be aware of progress. This is an area we absolutely need research in. And it's really tricky. It's like the young woman on on any sort of hormonal contraception and how you decide she's energy deficient and how you decide she's not is just not an area
0: we know enough about yet. Wonderful, thank you. So to conclude our podcast today, Megan, your take home messages for our listeners, please.
1: I think this diagnosis is extremely common. I think we are only scratching the tip of the iceberg of what we're finding and what's out there. So have a very high level of suspicion and don't rule it out just because BMI is what we see as normal. If you can get a multidisciplinary approach to diagnosis and management, you're going to make much more progress and really push for that early on. The overall aims of management are to liberalize food groups, liberalize nutrition, have enough nutrition, don't overdo the exercise, cut back as much as you can, and manage the stress and anxiety that all of those changes bring about. And I think a medical lead to actually coordinate the other groups involved and drive care is really important in managing this condition and not giving up, continuing to support that person,
0: manage their addiction is vital. Wonderful. Thanks for joining us today, Megan. It's been an insightful podcast and lots of learning that went on for me and I'm sure for lots of others. So there's some resources on our website at goodfellowunot.org and you're able to claim your CPD points. Thank you for
1: listening. Thank you, Louise.